The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, the two evidence rule. Well, uh, look, recall briefly where we are. Where we are. We're going through maxims for biblical interpretation of parables, uh, and that's under H, th- Roman number three H, and uh, typical strategies of parables. Maybe the two evidence rule doesn't long under this, but you'll see uh, anyway. And the two evidence rule, as you recall, is each element in the parable that stands for something else, that is, functions as a symbol of something on the second level. Each such element must have two evidences for it, preferably one of a constructional kind, a constructional evidence, that is that um, the role of the literal element in the literal story is genuinely parallel to the role, that is the structural role, of the symbolic thing it symbolizes in the symbolic story. Uh, That's one evidence, and the other evidence must either be a feature evidence, that is that there are features analogous between the two levels or what I call a class evidence, that is, that elsewhere in scripture or in the same story, this particular feature is used, uh, is correlated um, with its symbol in the same way. (coughs) And I might add to those, that uh, rule, this additional qualification that the analogies that I'm talking about and the evidences that I'm talking about should be what the um, anthropological and linguistic terminology has called emic analogies. You know about the etic emic distinction. Etic, uh, it's a think of an anthropologist going to a new tribe. Etic is either his initial impressions or his formulation, final formulation, from outside against the background of a sort of universal uh, classification of all cultures. Whereas Emic is the insider's point of view, which he has to begin to understand. Okay? Now, you can have the terminology was originally invented in linguistics, but has broader application, I'm not using it in the technical linguistic sense, but in the sense of what does it look like to first century Palestinian audience and then a little more broader to Luke or Mark or Matthew's audience. Does do these evidences, would they make sense? I'm not saying that they'd consciously reason it through, but would they make sense that is within inside the culture and linguistic and social systems? <clears throat> uh, that context, okay? Now, I gave uh, one example of that 
But let me give another. Uh, Luke 12, 45 to 48. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who, do, who knows his master's will and does not get ready or do, does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. Okay, now, the, again, an easy example would be, who does the master stand for, if anything? Right? And one evidence would be a class evidence. That's, in fact, maybe the easiest one to start with. That is that elsewhere in Jesus' parables, the master frequently stands for God or sometimes for Christ himself as a representative of God and as we know in terms of later revelation as God himself, second person of the Trinity. So that is the, the master then, and of course that isn't unique to parables, right? It also goes back to the Old Testament as well. So that is a strong class evidence. But then you ask, what role does the master take in the story? The master holds the servant accountable, and uh, in case he's not faithful, he punishes him. And the role of punisher, right, would belong to God as well. So in terms of the role in the story, now that's constructional evidence then, the role in the story, belong, it fits, it makes sense for God then to fill this particular role analogous to the master in the story. Now what about verse 45? The servant begins to eat and drink and get drunk. All right, the eating and drinking, class evidence for that is the uh, idea of final feasting in the kingdom of heaven. Does that fit the construction? No, it doesn't, you see, right? Because this is uh, a disobedient feasting. Well, that's an ev that's a occasion where you've got one evidence, but really you've got other things that are counting against that, right? So now those are very simple and elementary cases, and I don't want to pretend that all the cases would be equally uh, easy. Now, what about this? Um, the fact is, this two evidence rule, as far as I know, it's not in the literature, unless one of my students <laughs> graduating from the seminary has written an article about it. Uh, I've never heard it discussed, never seen it discussed. I haven't kept up on the literature, though, not really. There's an immense blossoming of literature on variables in particular. But is it any good? My desire here is to grope after uh, a, an explicit formulation of what I think native speakers and people emic to a culture in that sense, what they instinctively do. They're not going to reason it out and say, now do I, you know, right? They're not going to have all this stuff consciously in their minds. But it's an analysis after the fact. Right? So it's no better than the real thing. Right? It can't legislate for parables or anybody. But it's, in fact, a description that is groping after what I think real people actually do. That is, when they're not carried away by some hermeneutical scheme. 
right? Because there's always the possibility, right, of bringing in, uh, you know, other things and, and going in other directions. So I, th this so-called two evidence rule then comes with no guarantees <laughs> attached. <laughs> but I nevertheless give it because my, my own impression in, in interacting with the literature on parables is that there are quite a few people who are relatively reasonable, <laughs> especially among evangelicals, you know, who have a stake. Although, you know, we got to be suspicious of ourselves, right? Because precisely because we have a stake, it's so important for us for the thing to come out right that we won't be more tempted to force it to come out right than a liberal who doesn't care. So, but we also are in sympathy with the message. So, so I don't want to depreciate the work of, of other evangelicals, but to a degree, the liberals, at least, you know, if they don't handicap themselves, either by saying, well, we're going to take this thing just as a literary piece. Now, this is the modern literary approach, just as a literary piece independent of its historical context. That's asking for trouble. And I haven't addressed that very much, I don't think, in this class. And my notes go back, many of them, to years before, before this sort of modern literary approach got going in full blossom. My short response to that would be that a given sequence of words in almost any language, in almost any culture, can sponsor a multitude of meanings if you uproot it from particular contexts. And what happens, and what has been demonstrated by Stanley Fish, who's one of the advocates of, of uh, readers creating meaning, <laughs> what happens is that people inevitably put the literature, the piece of language, in some context of their own, which they cook up. But of course, then you know, you're going to get as many meanings as there are contexts that are cooked up for. So uh, if you ignore that kind of thing, which can be intellectually stimulating, but I think in the end is vain in the sense of Ecclesiastes, right? because you know, it's, it can, has a certain interest, but, but where, you know, where's the end to it? It just spins and spins out an indefinite number of interpretations with little relation necessarily to what uh, divinely sponsored meaning is all about. So, uh, and you ignore the liberals who um, are too smart for their own good, as I would put it. I don't want to put that um, as a sort of flippant dismissal, but the, the, they're trying to peel away the layers and so made themselves, you know, expose themselves to all the uncertainties that come with that and all the speculation. So that there's a lot of interpretation of the parables which is more or less reasonable. But even among those people, I think there's a certain, um, there are certain um, pressures. Pressures because you feel that you can't back it up, absolutely. Well, that's the character of parables, right? There are, if, if I'm right, that it partly depends on what kind of soil you are, then of course you're not going to be able to back up your interpretation, even if it's a good interpretation, even if you're good soil, you're not going to be able to back up your interpretation in such a way as it will be satisfactory scientifically, objectively, because the goal of the Enlightenment, you know, was to create in biblical studies 
So there's something analogous to modern science that anybody, regardless of his religious viewpoint, could check it out, which, of course, is a lie because a radical Vedantic Hindu thinks that the world is illusion and will not pay attention to modern science either. You can't make anything, even scientifically, in such a way that it is universally checkable. <laughs> Uh, you've got to have certain presuppositions in force, right? But, of course, science is, uh, has accumulated enough presuppositions so that people within a certain religious spectrum can agree. Can we expect that with respect to the interpretation of the New Testament? No, I don't think so. So there's going to remain a feeling of, of the possibility of subjectivity. But then it's easy to be tempted, I think, to retreat into minimal interpretation for the sake of safety, all right? And to feel, well, you know, if I go beyond that, who's to say? And the feeling, again, in reaction against the extensive and detailed allegorization of previous centuries to say, some of that, my gut feeling is, I'm expressing it, you know, first person, but it's this thinking of other people. My gut feeling is that that's gone too far, that it's let the imagination loose in an uncontrolled way. So to be safe, I'm gonna pull back. Yes, yes, all right. But the danger is then, I think, in pulling back to a very minimal stance for the sake of what I call the safety of object, you know, the safety or objectivity, right? But I'm saying, really, that's, there's a certain falsity of, of understanding about what parables are, are about if you're looking for safety. You can't be safe, right? If I'm right that parables have a curse fun function, then, then you can't be safe. You might as well take some risks. So this two evidence rule is groping towards saying it is possible to have some kind of middle ground over against the two extremes that we have seen. And for that middle ground to make sense, even though for most people, for most centuries, it has been primarily intuitive. They, you know, they've said, well, this is what I think it means, you see, without necessarily being able to explicitly say why. Well, the two evidence rule is trying to make explicit and to say there is, in fact, something reasonable going on in people's judgments, even when they have not been able to tell you exactly why they think that one thing has a direct symbolic significance and another thing is a colorful detail, as I've called it. How do you tell the difference, right? That's the question. How do you tell the difference between a colorful detail, what I've called a colorful detail, and remember, it's not, that's not a minimizing description. A colorful detail and something that you can say, this means that. And, uh, so this rule is groping towards that, but in the end, you can, if you choose, not believe it. <laughs> it's secondary to the phenomena, right? It's got no independent authority. But for the reasons I gave you, um, I produced the rule uh, in an attempt to make explicit what people are doing, and to assure ourselves, yes, it may not be insane to be in some middle position. Okay, so I don't know whether that's reassuring or not, but it's intended to be, and intended to be to enable to make us think explicitly along some lines of just what kind of evidence have we got if we claim that something has a, some detail has a symbolic significance. Okay.
So much for that. Although some of your papers and some of later discussion, we may come back to that. I mean, we can discuss it now if anybody has uh, questions. Yes. Well, it is, right? That's, uh, <laughs> that's right here. And something which strikes us as uh, just a colorful detail. Well, I can give you an example of that that's fairly clear in this, the birds making their nests in the branches of the tree, that's the parable of the mustard seed. If we just read that as a first time read through the New Testament without a knowledge of the Old Testament, which of course is quite a part of the cultural background, it's easy to estimate, well, that's just a colorful detail just to show how big the tree got. Well, in fact, it is used at least two, maybe three times in key Old Testament context with reference to the nations and these gigantic kingdoms. Uh, and so it resonates um, more uh, with uh, its background than we might suspect. And, and of course, I'm not, that's an easy illustration because it's there in the Old Testament, it's there explicitly. But there's nothing the matter with Jesus in parables interacting with general revelation. In fact, part of my argument about Jesus as mediator of creation and mediator of redemption is he's interacting with creational things that don't necessarily have a lot of Old Testament background every time. A parable of lost sheep clearly does. What about the lilies of the field? Well, you know, behold the lilies, how they grow. Well, that doesn't call to mind an awful lot of Old Testament <laughs> texts, but it does, you know, appeal to something immediately there in creation, you know, as long as we're on this. Um, my reaction for years to that particular saying of Jesus was in, okay, just, I don't even know uh, offhand where it is, I think it's in Luke uh, 12 or 13. 12. Um, but he says, uh, they neither uh, 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 toil nor spin, yet I tell you in Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And that's just after he's cited the birds that don't have storehouses and barns. And he says, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? It's a basically trust in God in the context of his kingdom provision. We're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things should be yours as well. That's the context in which that is said. And for years I thought, that's a nice colorful illustration, you know, that's a beautiful illustration uh, of, of the principle of God clothing you. And then one, one day, basically, I woke up and I realized now it's more than that. Because I think Jesus' original hearers would have reacted not only with, um, with a positive reaction of satisfaction and of comfort, but a negative one of feeling, we are fools because we have sat around us all lives with these lilies growing and we have never seen what was right before our eyes. <laughs> it's, there's a convicting element in effect of saying, you stupids, <laughs> you, you blind people that you haven't, you haven't seen the obvious. <laughs> so uh, the point is then that that's, you know, that's appealing to something, although again, we can relate to that because we can understand about flowers growing, but sometimes we have to think a little more about, say, in agricultural economy, the parable of the sower, 
right? For farmers, many of, you know, many of the Israelites being farmers, for farmers, the question of whether you get a crop is really big in your mind. And I think that is a significant contribution to my argument that says the last of the soils is set apart from the other three. So those are examples of that kind of thing. The uh, Edersheim, um, although it's older and a little out of date, uh, uh, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah has a lot of material. Um, Roland DeVoe on the Old Testament has a lot. He's a critical scholar, but fairly conservative. Uh, other books um, uh, that slip my mind right now, but in, uh, should be in your bibliography and hermeneutics, are about that social environment. All right, well, I'm going to go on. Um, if three intended effects on the audience, and I've uh, sort of anticipated this a little bit in some of the things I've said. Let's just uh, take up the things one at a time. A, inviting judgment. Parables are centered on a main point for which the parable is a kind of argument inviting the hearer's judgment. Now that's picked up from Charles Dodd, and you can see the one-point theory lurking in the background behind it, but you know, we might want to tweak that aspect of it. But, you know, to say that there is only one point is different from saying that there is a main point. So I, if I formulate that way, sure, you know, there can be a main point and then, you know, details which micro-meanings, as Boucher call them, which uh, uh, reinforce and contribute to a macro-meaning. But um, you want to say, if there is a macro meaning, that there, there may be within that something of a movement. And Boucher, I don't want to be unfair to her, but her formulations may be a little bit too static. Uh, not that she would be averse, probably, to this point, but, but the way she formulates the meaning is just there. And you can look at it that way, but you can also look at it from the standpoint of moving the listener from point A to point B, right? And point B being something that is, he's reluctant to admit. Luke 20, verses 9 to 18, I've mentioned this parable before, I think. It's the parable, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, yes, the parable of the tenants is an obvious case of this. Uh, he went on to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard. The man, pretty quickly, from both constructional and class evidence, you can figure out is God and the vineyard is Israel. Isaiah 5 is a background. Rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant. This is the prophet then. To the tenants. Who are the tenants? Now, the vineyard is Israel. The tenants is more like the leaders the people, the prophets and priests and kings and uh, you know, elders, the prominent people who are taking care of the rest, you see. So the prophets are sent, but they are beat and sent away empty-handed. Basically, the prophets are rejected, right? And the owner of Inuit said, what shall I do? I will send my son. Now, it goes on, and you can interpret this parable allegorically as the way I'm doing. But the point is that it's an argument for the guilt of Israel. And because people will read this and say, even though they might 
identify to a certain extent with tenants, uh, because, and this is part of background of Matt's question, that there's discussions of, of uh, people who are, and it's not that particular parable, but <coughs> discussions of, of uh, absentee landowners and exploited tenants and things like that. Uh, so that there might be a certain sympathy that the audience would have with the tenant's point of view, but what the tenants do is still shocking, right? To kill the son is clearly out of bounds. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, the audience is going to admit that. And then it goes on, verse uh, 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So it does constitute, really, the main point being you're guilty for rejecting God's messengers and preeminently the son who is sent last of all. And uh, it invites them to judge who is right in the story and then, of course, to judge the implications of that for their lives. Nathan's parable to David is clearly, very, very clearly, an example of that kind of thing, right? It gets David to pronounce the judgment, uh, and then, of course, he pronounces judgment on himself. So my, um, my observation here is not all parables may do this kind of thing equally directly or equally obviously, but you should be on the watch for it. That it isn't just, well, this thing even about the lilies, right? Oh, nice. Right? How sweet. <laughs> but, you know, where have we been all this time that we didn't see this? <laughs> um, okay. Second uh, area, this is B now, parables as provoking. And John Dominic Crossan has written a number of things on parables. He is, it may give the impression of being a bit of a wild man. Um, He's got some ideas that are a little far out. <laughs> so I am not endorsing by any means everything he says. Uh, but uh, listen to this particular thing and, and tell me whether you think there's at least something in it. There is, uh, this is John Dominic Crossan. It's an article called Parable, Allegory, and Paradox in Semiology and Parables, edited by Daniel Pott. P-A-T-T-E, page 247-281. And you've got to understand that Crossan is, I think, a Jesuit, or he's a Roman Catholic. And he is discussing the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, imagine a contemporary parallel. A Roman Catholic priest, okay, now this is Crossan, so he's, this is the good guy, you see. A Roman Catholic priest priest preaches as follows from a Belfast pulpit, Northern Ireland, one Sunday. A man from the Falls Road lies wounded. Falls Road is a Roman Catholic area in there in Belfast. A Roman Catholic priest passes by. An IRA member passes by. A Protestant terrorist stops and assists him. <laughs> How does the congregation react? Does it hear, help those in need? 
or even love your enemies. Any audience so parabled knows immediately and viscerally that an example story demanding love of enemies should put the enemy or outsider wounded by the roadside and have him helped by such as are in the audience and not vice versa. An example puts the Samaritan in trouble and has the Jew help or puts the terrorist in the afflicted position and has the Catholic stop to help. Examples persuade, but parables provoke. That's pages 259 to 260. And, um, you know, since Crossan is engaged in these contemporary pa parables, um, a man is beat up and lying by the side of the street out here on Church Road. And then um, uh, Presbyterian, PCA minister drives by and just keeps going. And a Westminster professor drives by and keeps going. And a Jehovah's Witness stops. Oh, <laughs> right, the heretic, but the Samaritans, the Samaritans were heretics. <laughs> um, you know, that's not the way we would tell a story. Uh, those of you who took hermeneutics with me, remember that the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, right? Two men go up into the church to pray, one a Westminster Seminary professor and the other a drug dealer. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of story that <laughs> Jesus is telling, right? And the uh, and the seminary professor congratulates himself on, on uh, observing how God has left him free from what this drug dealer is caught in. And uh, so the point is that there, uh, there are things in the parables that are deeply disturbing, that are shocking, that, that must have driven people practically out of their minds <laughs> with, with frustration <laughs> of, you know, this is not what we want to hear. <laughs> Here's another example. Uh, Luke 14, 7 to 11. It's the parable of the people taking their places at the feast. And we, we can sort of take this in stride, I think, because it's been so familiar to us. Uh, Luke 14, 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. And the fact is, I suspect this, this is an, an ancient Middle East culture. I suspect that statement by itself, when you're invited, take the lowest place, is a shocking statement. Nobody does that. And you can see it even in the Old Testament where Joseph has his brothers, they've come, and he places them at the table. Where you are at the table shows your standing in society. That is the way people think. Now we, particularly if you've grown up here in the United States, we are tremendously egalitarian and we've been influenced by the Gospels itself 
to a point where we're looking for the hypocrites. We're looking to shoot these guys down, you know, to deflate any claims to, you know, for somebody who's lifting himself up. But this is a culture that hasn't had that inoculation and sometimes, you know, it becomes secularized and it's no good anymore. But again, it's one of these things of it doesn't make sense. Corintel Jesus explains it, right? Uh, this is clean contrary to the way the culture operates. And the parable of the wicked tenants is pretty disturbing. I mean, it disturbs the uh, religious leaders, but it's also a pretty shocking thing for an Israelite because the Israelites, by and large, are complacent. We are the people of God. We are, I'm okay, and you're not okay if you're a Gentile. That is, the, you know, the innate tendency of human nature, and surely, I mean, there were, there were very godly people in Israel, of course, Yet the temptation is there to um, become complacent. So the point is, watch four things in the parables that are provoking. Now, why? Why does Jesus do this? I can't say all the reasons, though I can see some of them in that, in that it's not just learn to love your enemy. Now, surely that is part of the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I think we tend to tame it down, right? Because we read it without a sense... That, this is Jehovah's Witness, right? When I tell it, I retell it, especially, you know, if you, you'd been warned, so you were, you know, you'd already sort of guarded yourself, but if it were retold without a warning, you know, it is just very shocking. And what, what I think the result is, is not, as Crossan says, it's not just love your enemy, but rethink your whole view of the world. I mean, it is... Basically, all bets are off, right? What I thought was the existing world, what I thought I had nailed down in place, is suddenly called in question. All kinds of things, just about living. Now, that's, you might say, all of this has been point one under provocation. One, point one is basically that provocation can be direct, that is, by challenging some accepted truth, what people think is true, about their lives. Often one of these things that you take for granted, right, that isn't even discussed because everybody knows it's true. And again, you wonder, you know, I've talked about, well, should we use parables today? And it's, we've got a culture here in the United States that to some extent, and it's broken up into all kinds of subcultures, but to some extent, there's a lot of people that that are to one degree hardened to the gospel. So, you know, you wonder whether um, we oughtn't to look for ways, not only for a fresh uh, expression of the gospel, but even something that uh, provokes people. It can be good to provoke people. Well, the second, and this is point two now, is that the provocation can be more subtle, more indirect, by an intellectual upset. Dodd has remarked that the parables tease us into thought. Again, you can take that with a grain of, of salt, but it's certainly true at times. How so? That the ordinary no longer looks ordinary. That it begins to change your view of the world. Now, you know, I mentioned that through the direct provocation, but it may do this 
by hooking people in along one line of interpretation and then upsetting their interpretation, either by a surprising outcome or by an outcome which, on deeper analysis, challenges the original interpretation. Okay, let me give you some examples. Now, the first one is a little, maybe it's, you know, this line between direct and indirect um, provocation is not a firm one, and maybe the first example will not be um, a very convincing one from that standpoint. Uh, all right, Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. That's going to be God, right? I mean, again, your class evidence, you've got that. And he is in authority, right? Who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. This is something like then people who commit themselves to the service of the kingdom of God. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said, to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Okay, well, this is straightforward, right? And we've got a situation where we can already guess, basically, there's going to be some payment in proportion to the amount that the people have worked. All right, so we've set up an interpretation. And we already can anticipate. It's so natural, we can already anticipate the last part. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. Well, that's interesting. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. That's not fair. Everybody knows that's not fair. They only worked one hour, the first, you know, the guys were hired at 11. So when those who came were hired first, they expect, uh, sorry, verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And here we are, listeners to the parables, and we're grumbling against the landowner too. It's not fair. <laughs> now, you know, it's hard to catch you guys out, and gals, <laughs> it's hard to catch you out because you know the story too well. <laughs> but the fact is that I think in our hearts, we have, if we admit it, we have a good deal of sympathy for those, <laughs> those ones who are grumbling and who then explain why, verse 12. 13, but he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Did you didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired the last the same as I gave to you. To which our inward reply is, you want to, but it's not fair. <laughs> Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Well, when you put it that way, but I still don't like what you did with your money, or are you envious because I am generous? Whoa. Is your eye bad because I am good? Is what the literally says in, in Greek. 
that is, uh, there's a bit of this character of the argument, right? But it's also, it, 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 there's a provoking element, I think, because it sets up a particular line in, of interpretation and then it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out or I wanted it to turn out. And then in addition, you find out that you're there with the people who are grumbling and are being attacked <laughs> for the state of your heart. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's basically challenging, I think. It's undermining the innate tendency which all of us have to think in terms of reward being a matter of fairness, being a matter of getting what I deserve and saying the kingdom of heaven is not like that. You cannot calculate that way anymore. But that's upsetting because, you see, it's not the normal mode of thinking. It is getting you, it is provoking in several ways, I think, at this point, but it starts with this idea of you, you have one line of thinking and then it's upset. Another example, now this is a little bit different, is the lost sheep, John 15, verse 3. Then Jesus told in this parable, well, look, you've got to have a context, as Matt has uh, reminded us, <laughs> right? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This is verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So it is set up, you see, being an answer here. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Who's the one of you? Well, I mean, it's appealing to them to judge them for themselves, right? There's that element. But clearly that stands for God, who is the great shepherd. The lost one is the sinner, right? So does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends together and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So far, so good. All right, so here's joy over the sinner who recovers and repents. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. See, we got it right. You know, right now, it's an interpretation of the parable. Over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It appears that Jesus lets people off the hook, right? And I've actually heard people worry, not often, but worry if they've been thinking about this parable because it's addressed to the Pharisees. And they start out, okay, so here are these sacrifices and sinners over there, and here we are. They've gone astray, we have not gone astray. We're the 99. And Jesus apparently accepts that self-evaluation, or does he? <laughs> Matt doesn't think so. I don't think so either. But it's close, it's, you see, it's, it's close enough to what they want to hear that it may actually get inside their ears enough that they say, okay, this is a story, you know, and I can accept at least pieces of it, right, because it makes this distinction. So I'm one of the 99. So all I have to do is to think about that one. But what happens? There is joy, there is joy in heaven, verse 7. 
And are these Pharisees and preachers of the law, are they participating in that joy? Are they the friends and neighbors? No, they are excluded, which means they're outside in a certain extent, which means maybe they're not where they ought to be, which means maybe they're lost. <laughs> in other words, this, you know, the thing, it's, it looks on the surface as if there really are 99 righteous persons. Or are there? <laughs> because the people who not only the Pharisees would identify as the righteous is the 99 righteous, but who everybody else in Israel virtually would identify as the 99 righteous are in fact not joined with the righteous rejoicing of God. And if they're not, then that begins to call in question just how safe and secure their own position is. Are they in fact in every respect still in the fold? And then there's something else, because in the Old Testament, it's not only that God is represented as a shepherd, but there are a couple of passages, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, that talk about the shepherds, plural, of Israel, namely the leaders, and whether or not they care for the sheep, and they're rather scathing indictments of the fact they're not caring for the sheep in a responsible way, that, and so God has to come himself in Ezekiel 34. He says, I'm going to come. And I'll judge between the strong sheep and the weak and the ones that are exploiting. And, and so, so it's a judgmental word. And so the Pharisees turn out not only to be sheep but shepherds, but false shepherds. What are you doing? Right? Why aren't you going out if you're a true shepherd, you see? And so it's an even stronger indictment than just being a lost sheep. You're an irresponsible shepherd. <laughs> Which is, in a sense, worse because everyone to whom much is given of him will much be required. That kind of situation. And in case, in case you didn't quite get it, he tells this parable, and then he tells a second parable about the lost coin, verses 8 through 10. One lost coin, nine coins that are safely in the woman's possession, again. And then a final, of the last of three parables, the parable of the lost son. And the parable of the lost son, there is a lost son and there is a found son. That is the son who never leaves, right? So again, the, the son who never leaves is the safely righteous son who's safe at home. And then the lost son comes home and there's rejoicing and there's a feast. Verse 24, and so the story ends. No, it doesn't end. <laughs> right? Verse 24, you'd think it's over, right? The son is, is reconciled, the father is celebrating. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother is coming, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he is, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And the end of the story Father comes out and reasons with him. In the end of the story, he's still not in. So that that parable as a sequel to the parable of rice sheep, the lost sheep also begins to even further undermine what may have been partially there, not so obviously, but it's, you know, it's so obvious in a way you can't avoid it, right, by the time you come to the parable of the lost son. Well, my point is that a parable which appears to be safe may not be so safe. 
uh, and that it undermines certain assumptions that you may start at the beginning to have. Let me give you a couple of other illustrations. I know we've passed our official break time, but I'll take the break at a logical point. Luke 19, 11 to 27 is the parable of the nobleman who goes away. Uh, he wanted him to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained by it. Well, you know that story. And the analogy clearly is Jesus himself. The man of noble birth corresponds to Jesus, who is going to go ascend to the Father in effect. Right? And uh, it's the Father then who will grant him kingly power. <laughs> in the meantime, the servants are his disciples primarily who are left behind. He goes away. Or is he away? Right? The, par the parable seems to set it up that this man of noble birth, and therefore Jesus himself by analogy, is safely out of the picture for a time, and yet he is still in the picture <laughs> because he's holding these servants responsible for what they do with those many, and they can never forget that if they start forgetting it and making loose with it then they call down judgment on themselves. So the weight of that responsibility, at the very least, is with them the whole time when he is away. And of course, now Jesus is giving them this word which will bind the disciples to responsible service to him while he is, quote, away. Or is he away, you see, because his word still be, will be with them. Now, we know from John that it's even more intense than that. He gives the Holy Spirit, so there is even a deeper sense in which he's not away. But I think you can see even in this parable, there's a sense in which, through his word, he's remaining with them, you see. Uh, and so, it is not quite as simple as it looks on the surface. Luke 12, 35 to 40. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they will immediately open the door to him, for him. It will be good for those servants whom his, whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It's that final verse. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And maybe this is a peculiarly intellectual temptation that only besets certain people. But there are people who are saying, well, I am expecting him, so clearly he's not going to come right away. Or if everybody around me is expecting him, then that's a signal he's not coming right away. 
But the trouble is that then you begin to play games because, you know, God knows that you've done that reasoning. And so there's a higher sense in which as a result of that reasoning, you're not expecting him. So he may come at that time too. <laughs> in other words, you can't, you can't outguess God, right? And try to calculate on the basis of a saying like this and saying, well, now I've risen to a level of superiority because I know this teaching. So I don't really have to watch only when everybody else is not watching. No, no, it won't. It will, uh, it's God's uh, reckoning of when he will come and um, can't be outguessed by human nature. Now, well, my point is that then an initial, an initial reaction, well, now I do know when he's going to come because he told me, namely when nobody expects him, right? But that, you know, it's just caught in the same problem. All right, where are we now? That's prov provocation, and uh, we'll take up pregnant depth after five-minute break. If we come, yeah, if we come together again here, um, we have three C pregnant depth. If we take the guidelines that I've given you up to this point there's a still a possible problem in that these guidelines would not have enabled us to reconstruct independently of Jesus' interpretation all the meanings of the parable of the sower. Maybe we could have groped after some of these things, but imagine yourself, you see, part of the audience, part of the crowds, hearing the parable of the sower, and I give you, in addition to that, these guidelines, would you be able to reconstruct the interpretation that Jesus, you had not heard, but that Jesus gave to the uh, disciples who took him apart? And I don't think so. Now, the problem that that raises, I mean, it's the specter of, then Poitras is too conservative, you see, because... These guidelines will maybe, you know, be guidelines for getting things that are genuine meanings, but there's more out there that Jesus has given. <coughs> so we need, so the guidelines are not enough. My response to that is that Jesus does add some specifics in his interpretation. And some of those specifics, maybe some you could say, well, could be inferred using our guideline principles and so on. Some of the specifics, I think, could not easily be inferred. Talk about being choked by the riches and cares of life, for instance. And so, in some sense, I could say those things are not in the parable, quote, unquote, in the sense of being available at the time the parable was given to all and sundry. But, of course, Jesus did not intend that the parable should stand alone forever, right? And part of my struggle, as I, we've talked about this growth of understanding, it's not growth in a vacuum of somebody who hears the parable of the sower and then goes off and stays in his house, ignorant of everything that's going on for the rest of his life, and suddenly comes to an independent illumination. I mean, that's completely artificial. Right? It's not just thinking more about the parable and letting it sink in, although that can be helpful. 
but it's also a continuation of redemptive history. The fact is, and this is this business about meaning, right? Does the meaning of a text reside in the text or in its relations to other texts? And it's a both and, as far as I'm concerned. In hermeneutics, we talk about that. The meaning of a picture is the whole picture, right? Not individual blobs of paint. So it's a part-whole problem. But the parables were never intended just to stand in isolation. And if so, you see, the interpretation is, in a sense, part of the parable. Jesus intended that not only to give it to his disciples, but that eventually, through the disciples' understanding being spread and taught in the church and so on, that the interpretation itself would be taken together with the parable and one would be able to see Jesus' intention more than one could see simply from the words taken by themselves. So, a gospel as a whole more broadly, can give a more precise or fuller or more implications of meaning than the parable simply as originally heard in isolation. And that's okay because of this phenomenon of growth. So when I talk about pregnant depth, I'm saying basically the same thing of the phenomenon of there is intended in Jesus' own um, uh, purpose that there would be an unfolding of meaning, not s simply by sort of meditating on the parable, but by seeing it in relation to other things that were yet to, to develop. So I think it's okay, <coughs> then, to admit that the interpretation, in some respects, adds something, although, of course, it's in harmony with what we could already see. In cases, however, where we don't have an independent interpretation or where all we have is a short interpretation like the parable of the lost sheep. In fact, verse 7 is kind of interpretation. It's the story has stopped, right? And then it's a straight statement. I tell you that in the same way, that in the same way is now, you see, the transition to the second level of meaning. There will be more rejoicing in heaven. Suddenly you're no longer in the story of sheep and shepherds. Okay, so that's an interpretation, but pretty short. Sometimes we will be given that. Sometimes we will be given a long interpretation. Sometimes we will be given really nothing, right, other than context of the gospel. But that, too, is a kind of commentary, right? Although vaguer and uh, less specific in some ways. But we have got to accept, I would just argue, whatever God does, <laughs> right, in terms of if he chooses to give nothing more than the general context of the gospel, then we are not necessarily to do the same thing. In other words, to precisely imitate in detail, try to mimic what Jesus did in giving his interpretations, but to recognize our own limitations and the fact we're going to have to fill in from a larger context. So that's the way I would deal with a pregnant death, to say there is more, but it's a more that we learn from the context and from the development of redemptive history. All right. Finally, 3D, well, this is not quite final because I have a point four too. 3D is that different parts of the audience may respond differently in their understanding and that that is also part of the thrust of a parable. So I would encourage you to think about at least the possibility, and I'm not guaranteeing that every parable will do this to an equal degree, although vaguer and uh, less specific in some ways, but we have got to accept 
I would just argue, whatever God does, right, in terms of if he chooses to give nothing more than the general context of the gospel, then we are not necessarily to do the same thing. In other words, to precisely imitate in detail, try to mimic what Jesus did in giving his interpretations, but to recognize our own limitations and the fact we're going to have to fill in from a larger context. So that's the way I would deal with a pregnant death, to say there is more, but it's a more that we learn from the context and from the development of redemptive history. All right. Finally, 3D. Well, this is not quite final because I have a point four too. 3D is that different parts of the audience may respond differently in their understanding and that that is also part of the thrust of a parable. So I would encourage you to think about at least the possibility, and I'm not guaranteeing that every parable will do this to an equal degree, but to think about the possibility that parables may have a sifting function in terms of the differences of responses of different audiences. Different parts of the audience, in other words, may respond in their understanding to different degrees and with different depth of understanding and at different times, right? Because that's part of the point of this development. So here's, and this is, would be a subpoint. Um, I guess it'd be a, a one under this, uh, possible compositions of the audience even during Jesus' earthly night. Now, you can extend this out, of course, to Luke and Mark's audience and so on. But I think it's particularly interesting to think about it during Jesus' earthly life. Because we can, to a certain extent, identify from the context of the Gospels themselves different parts of potential audiences. Here they are. A, this is under one, parts of the audience in effect. A, those who are actively hostile to Jesus' ministry. Mostly the religious leaders is who you hear about, the scribes of Pharisees. Though possibly other people, but they are, they're the most prominent. Those actively hostile, seeking to trip him up, seeking to discredit him, you know. Secondly, B, those unsympathetic or uninterested or, quote, neutral, because neutrality is, in effect, lack of sympathy in this case. This is not the peoples then primarily who are biting at his heels, trying to trick him with trick questions. But it's the people who don't even come to hear him. Or the people who not only don't come to hear him, but are saying, you know, I heard over in this neighboring town that he really caused ruckus. He really, you know, sooner he leaves the better. I mean, there's gossip people. Right? There's bound to be that kind of thing. Again, not much mentioned in the Gospels, but you can infer there probably was some of it. See the curious. There are people who come to hear him. Oh, the great teacher is here and down. You know, let's go. We haven't got TV to entertain us, so <laughs> let's go see the spectacle. Uh, D, the vaguely sympathetic. People who thought there's something good coming here. Maybe this is a prophet, you know, something, some vague, I mean, that can be degrees in there, right? We could speculate 
But the crowds that you hear about, although they grow hostile sometimes, right, when Jesus provokes them, but they're going to contain, at the most favorable times, they're going to contain curious people. They're going to contain sympathetic people. And then this is uh, E. They're going to contain committed followers. That is, people who recognize that Jesus is the bearer of the word of God and who are willing to stake their life on that so far as they know. You know and they may not realize that he's God in the flesh. Right? That comes only with time. But they recognize him as a prophet, as, as a, or at least as a teacher who is teaching rightly according to the will of God. And then there is F, the traveling follower. Now, maybe I ought not to make distinctions this way because the traveling follower is not necessarily to be viewed as spiritually superior to the committed follower. Judas was a traveling follower. <laughs> All right, but in terms of visibility, you can distinguish these people. And this is where, I mean, there's been some speculation, right? When I talk about the curious and the vaguely sympathetic, uh, you can maybe find a few verses in the Gospels that hint at the fact there might be such things. But when you get to, well, although there's recognition, there's larger crowds. And Jesus calls for people to follow him and warns them not to follow him unless without counting the cost and so on. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. That's very clearly talked about in the Gospels. And then there is specific mention of people who traveled about with him, including some women. Luke 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Are these the only women you see that would have considered themselves followers of Christ? I don't think so. They followed him in terms of being a traveling, traveling around with him. And then, within that group, this will be G, the twelve who are clearly distinguished. And then, though this might be debated by some, the three, Peter, James, and John, Luke 8, 51, Luke 9, 28, seem to be at least, you know, a few times when Peter, James, and John uh, form uh, a circle even smaller than the 12 with which Jesus interacts uh, particularly intensely. So the point is that we've got all kinds of people, even during Jesus' earthly life. And of course, uh, by analogy, you can see this, you know, it's worth thinking about, although it even has to be by analogy. What does this imply for the, the spread of the gospel now? Okay, point two then is concerning not the composition of the audience, but audience reception. What could that be? And again, we must be a little speculative, but I think I'm going to string it out here a bit just so we realize that there could be these levels. <coughs> uh, a, there are people who don't hear because they don't take enough trouble to come out when Jesus comes to their town. They don't hear, period. 
B, there are people who hear in the sense that they're part of the audience. They hear the story, but maybe that's it. They have the surface meaning. That's an interesting story. I haven't got the foggiest idea what it's about. Might there be people like that? There might. With some of the parables, at least, although we've talked about, you know, the parable of the tenants seem to be um, clearer even to Jesus' enemies. But it's possible that some people then would be very dense. Uh, C, there might be curiosity about a mystery which holds promise. In other words, there is something, a feeling, an intuition, there is something here. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Well, I don't really understand what he's getting at, but it's, you know, there's something there. I want to think about that, right? So you're being drawn in. And then D, some faith in Jesus. I put that that way because I've argued already, I think, a sympathetic understanding of Jesus' ministry as a whole is a significant clue to understanding the meaning of the parables. Parables are parables of the kingdom. The kingdom is manifest in Jesus' ministry. If you see that, then you've got things to compare and to help you in figuring it out. And uh, fifth, uh, that would be E, I guess, you, you really do grasp what Jesus' ministry is doing. And with that grasp comes a grasp of the meaning of parables. Although, now again, that would be a matter of degree because even the 12 are criticized at times for their lack of faith. But Jesus does say in the parable of the sower, you has been given to know the secrets or mysteries of the kingdom of God. So there is something there of an affirmation of understanding. It's teaching for those who are inside, in other words. And the two groups about which I've spoken in the parable of the sower, the fruitful group versus the unfruitful, the three kinds of unfruitful ones, separate themselves off, I think, ultimately in terms of faith in Jesus. Although there is such a thing as temporary faith, right? There's people who think that or feel that they're giving some kind of commitment and then it turns sour after a while. Right? It's not to say people lose their salvation, but it's saying they never had it, but there's under the illusion of having had it. It's that kind of thing. Um, so, so basically, because we are not God, we don't know the state of people's hearts, we can't say absolutely where people are, right? But we're not intended to do that. We're intended to look at this parable and to say, this is the kind of development. We're observing this thing, but we don't necessarily know exactly what kind of soil uh, uh, people are until we see the harvest. Okay. Now, third point under this area of diversity in the audience is, I think, what I've already begun to say to you, but let me underline it, there is diversity in interpretation of parables based on who people are and where they are in relation to Jesus, faith in him, and in relation to the kingdom which is arriving in his ministry. In the midst of it, it is not only a matter that people can have various amounts of grasp of what's going on, of what's going on in his ministry, of what's going on in... Um, in the parables that he's teaching. And it's, it reminds me, uh, years ago before my wife and I were married, uh, my wife was in seminary, and a bunch of the seminary women were watching the um, Miss America contest. And the question that was 
posed to the contestants was, when would you like to live any other time than the present? When, would, when and where would you most like to live? If you had your choice. And most of them quite mindlessly said, oh, in the present, which, of course, <laughs> they told them not to say. And so the seminary women were discussing, well, you know, what would it be? And finally, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, you know, said when Jesus was on earth. And everybody kicked themselves. Of course, you know, why didn't we think of that? Except if you had been there, you would have been just as dense as everybody else. <laughs> right? It's, you know, so that you really need to choose the book of Acts so I can, the, the spirit is poured out. <laughs> so, you know, we romanticize, right? Oh, it would have been so spectacular except we wouldn't have understood it. <laughs> right? It was... It, it was this groping of understanding. It's very hard, I think, in some ways, to reproduce every aspect because we're standing on the air of the Spirit. We're, we have an understanding, and we can't leap out of our skins and pretend we don't, you see, to somehow get back. And, and, and uh, the, the Gospels are saying that the disciples understood after a fashion. And yet, there's clearly definite deficiencies and, and you know, where is your faith? And oh, man of little faith, you know, that sort of thing at the same time. Well, anyway, it's, it's something I don't think we can solve all the problems of saying exactly where everybody is, but just to be aware of the fact that there is this challenge. Uh, but the third point is not only is there degrees of understanding, and this is what I'm getting to, but there can be understanding which is plausible but wrong. In other words, there could be people who are left not with a feeling of puzzlement, not with a feeling of scratching your head and saying, you know, I'm not quite there, but people who think they understand and are trapped in a wrong understanding as a judgment. And I think that is partly because of the general properties of metaphorical language. The creation, we've talked about it, you know, that both of their two levels of meaning, and that opens theoretically the possible of miscorrelating the levels. But in addition to that, metaphors often are open-ended. It's saying, look at the correspondences between two fields. But well, then you explore and you say, well, exactly what do I stop at? The exact direction in which metaphor is to be extrapolated depends on context. And the, the associations and the suggestiveness and how one reacts to that can be decisively influenced in its direction by the context of previous hearing of Jesus and previous reaction to the kingdom. Now, this is the thing, you see, where I think you even sort of linguistically and interpretively and hermeneutically, you can see how, to a certain degree, I mean, we can't see to the bottom, but you can sense how, to a certain degree, if meaning depends on context, then to him who has him will be given. And from him who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away even what he thinks he has. You see, it's that the, the misinterpretation which thinks that it's latched onto the truth. And indeed, though it may not be so demonstrably so in the case of the parables, what about the scribes? What about the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection? And Moses came and he told us that if a man dies without children, the bro brother, you know, there were seven brothers and they go into this thing, 
they know the scripture. It's evident, right? And it was culturally so, right? If you research what they stood for, these people were leaders and they knew the scriptures and then Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. <laughs> well, <laughs> right, that poses a problem, but you can see how that can be, right? They've trapped, they're trapped into a false understanding. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It isn't that they hadn't read enough or that they didn't have enough intellectual brain power, right? But it's something deeper where they felt that they had an answer. They didn't feel a sense of puzzlement of we can't put this together. We have put it together and we've come out right, except they weren't right. <laughs> See, so that's, in some sense, I think it's a scarier kind of thing, right? But, but isn't that part of this potential of the judgmental function of scripture? Right, that you can be caught in a misunderstanding as well. Now, there's a human guilt, but there is also a demonic trapping that is possible. And here I have to refer again uh, to another passage outside of the Gospels. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, this is talking about an intellectual entrapment. It's very clear, right? Because he's talking about various people with false ideas and heretical ideas, and he's saying that they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So, and, and these people, it's not that they're saying to Timothy, well, teach me because I'm puzzled. I don't quite understand yet. But they think they understand better than Timothy. Uh, so this is a reality then, at least in terms of, you know, the understanding of the scripture as a whole. And uh, I heard Bruce Kowalki say some years ago that he had become convinced that if you wanted strongly enough to find a particular teaching in scripture, then you could find it. Uh, and, and I, you know, I wouldn't add to that, and I think Mulkey saw it in the background, I would add to that, that is so because God designed it to be so. I mean, that, that's even more terrifying, <laughs> right, of saying uh, that, that the scripture actually entraps people, and that it is, of course, clear on its main teachings, but not clear in such a way that it can't seize people who um, themselves want to seize and twist it. Now, I, so I think, again, you know, I'm drawing broader conclusions, and uh, uh, the, I, don't want to, um, I, I don't want to eliminate the special character of the Jesus parables and that there's special things they're doing there, and yet uh, there are some things about the parables